It's recess tonight. I'm Alan. And that would make me Rob. Hello, Rob. We have a very special guest on. We really do. We really do. We have a phenomenal, uh, phenomenally experienced and uh, educated human who we're really happy to talk to. My Stoke level has gone beyond 10 out of 10. It's It doesn't even exist on the Likert scale. I'm so stoked right now. I think we need to stop using Stoke. Stoke is using its cachet. We need to think of a new word here, buddy. All right. Well, to this other human, could you please introduce yourself? My name is Aline Gregosian, and I'm currently an emergency medicine resident at UPMC Pinnacle in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> nice. nice to be on the show, guys. <laughs> Sweet. We're really happy that you're here, without a doubt. By the way, Gregosian, what, what, what background is, is that? It's a very Armenian. It's Armenian, Armenian. actually. Yeah. Oh, nice. I like it. Great. <laughs> now, besides being an overall badass eMERGE resident, you have quite the story. And you are, in our eyes, the vision of resilience. So we were hoping to showcase you and your story for our listeners out there um, to talk a little bit about what you've been through in this last year and uh, your resilience. Sure. Now, I will say every, a lot of people tell me that and I'm like, man, if this happened to you, I feel like everybody would act the same way. But Sure. If, if it helps you guys, I'll tell my story. It totally helps. <laughs> so, um, so last October, actually, now that I think of it, it was right around this time when I started having like cold-like symptoms. And then um, it lasted until n- November, got worse throughout November. Um, and the only thing that, that stayed um, after that cold was this cough. And the cough wasn't going away. And not only was it not going away, but it was progressively getting worse throughout December. Um, I did what a normal resident doctor would do. I prescribed myself albuterol and steroids and <laughs> even a Z-pack, which totally should not do. Um, and, you know, none of that helped. Um, and, you know, I continued to work and I, I felt good enough to still go to work and I felt good enough to still like live my own life and and do all of that. So, you know, looking back, people keep asking me, like, right before everything happened, were you still exercising? And from what I remember, like, yeah, I, I, I don't, maybe I was exercising a little bit less. I, the, the only other symptom that I remember was that I was really tired around that time. And like, by tired, I mean, I was drinking like three Red Bulls a day, which is very strange for me because I rarely need caffeine. Um, and so tired were you, were with you, this cough. Yeah. Yeah. Were you kind of thinking like, I'm an eMERGE resident. This is probably just how I'm supposed to feel. Yeah. And like, I felt kind of dumb, like going to people and saying like, I'm really tired. Like, like you know, <laughs> we're all tired or adults like working 60 hours a week. So thanks tips that you're tired. Great. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I just thought I was getting older and no, there's a part of me that like kind of knew this might be something. And, and it, because it was getting worse and not getting better, I knew that at some point, you know, I was going to have to do something about it. Um, and I kept putting it off. And, you know, I was also working a ton. Um, and I remember, I, I remember a few things. So I remember like one time I was like in the subway in Philadelphia. This is when I was a resident in Philadelphia at the time. I was uh, in the subway and I was like walking up the stairs and like I felt myself like getting really short of breath going upstairs and like I had to like stop in like midway and which is like crazy because like everybody's like rushing all the time in Philadelphia and people like told me to like move and <laughs> it was crazy and I was like oh I'm kind of short of breath um, 
And another time I remember, so this was, I want to say mid-December at this point. I was working in the ICU as an ICU resident. I was doing admissions. um, So I wasn't working in the ER at this point. My ICU attending told me, she looked at me and she said, when you're doing these presentations, these patient presentations, you're stopping in between sentences to take a breath. Have you noticed that? And I hadn't noticed that. And I don't think anybody else had noticed either. I mean, again, I I totally didn't notice it, but she's an ICU doctor. So I assume she would notice these things. Um, and, and she told me, she said, you know, go get an x-ray, go do something about it. Um, I promised her I would make an appointment with primary care doctor the following day. The only thing was this right before Christmas. So, um, I think like offices were closed and like I was still working and like the earliest appointment available was like January or something like that. But I do remember I went home from that 24 hour call the following morning. Um, so, so, so that was a Wednesday that I worked. Thursday, I went home and I just wasn't feeling well that day. And I feel like within those 24 hours from Wednesday to Friday, I mean, from Thursday to Friday, all my symptoms got like a hundred times worse Um, to the point where I remember I was coughing like every minute and I couldn't even like walk to the bathroom without getting short of breath. And you'd think like, like at that point, I'm like, I, I think something's wrong. I gotta go to the ER. Um, and actually my, my boyfriend was visiting me. Um, he didn't, he didn't live in Pennsylvania at the time he was visiting me and he, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He came in to my living room and he was like, Whoa, something's definitely wrong with you. Um, let's go to the ER. So we decided to go. And then, um, being this amazing doctor that I am, I barely let the nurses and doctors do anything (laughs) when I got to the ER. (laughs) Um, I, I actually specifically remember telling the nurse, like, like I'm refusing to get a troponin. Like you can document that or something. Like, I was like, it's going to be high cause I'm tachycardic or something. But I remember we got a chest x-ray and, um, and it looked funky. It looked like there were, it looked like possibly like a multifocal pneumonia, but it, it just, it, looked weird for somebody who's 30 years old and healthy otherwise. And while, you know, labs, other labs were pending. And, and at that point I was like, it's probably pneumonia, you know, and get some antibiotics and I want to get out of here. I have work in the morning. Um, my attending came in and he's like, there's no way you're leaving. I think that there's something else going on. Um, we want to keep you in the hospital. And that, and I remember like, and I remember the nurses were in there the doctor was in there. My co-resident was in there and they were kind of like, doing all they could to like keep me there. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to stay. I don't want to stay. Um, but they, they got me to stay. So I stayed there. I, I went up to the floors and, um, and that's when everything happened. So I ended up crashing when I was on the floors. And, and when, the only thing I remember is maybe it was a couple hours in. Um, I remember I got like really, really sweaty and nauseous ringing in my ears. And I looked up at my monitor and my heart rate was like in the twenties or thirties at that point. Um, oh, yeah. And I think, and things are, things are super blessed at this point, especially, but, um, I think at that point, my boyfriend got up and he told one of the nurses or like some, something happened where like they called a rapid response. Um, and, and the only thing I remember was everybody came into the room and they were trying to get like pads on me. Cause I guess I was breathing down. And, um, and I remember somebody said like, should we just turn this into a code? I remember those words. Um, any other word, I, I don't remember what anybody else said. 
Now, I asked the nurses and residents, and this was only recently, maybe like four or five months ago is when people started actually talking about it because nobody wanted to talk about what had happened during that time. Um, Because remember, it was my friends, my own friends were the nurses and residents who were taking care of me during that night. Um, And like the nurse was taking care of me was like, yeah, you called out for your own intubation. And (laughs) you're like, I can't breathe. Somebody intubate me. Um, And like, you know, I guess I was really altered or something. I don't know. Um, And then one of the residents said one of the last things you said was um, she said something like, you know, just don't let me die tonight. Or that's what I said. Um, But yeah, like I'm, I'm hearing a lot of this stuff now, which is, you know, this is like eight, nine months after. So apparently, so that all happened. Um, uh, I don't remember, again, I don't remember the details. Uh, I went into cardiogenic shock. I was intubated. Um, I was, I was put on pressors and I went to the unit. Now at this point, they weren't sure what, why I had gone into cardiogenic, I mean, why I'd gone into shock and why I was basically pulseless at one point. But, um, we were trying, I guess they were trying to work everything out. When I woke up, I think it was after a day or two, um, that's when they told me that, you know, I had gone into cardiogenic shock, secondary to acutely decompensated heart failure from dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and it looked like it had been chronic dilated cardiomyopathy. Uh, so, Later on, we find out that I had this genetic defect, um, and it had been exacerbated by myocarditis, most likely. Like that was the running theory. But oh, I see. yeah, but um, but yeah, that's that's when like so just like a week before this, I was a normal you know resident. I, I'd actually just gotten into a critical care fellowship at Sinai in New York, um, and like a week later, here I am like on like inotropes and like in a in the ICU, and that's when they told me like within a week they told me that I needed a heart transplant. Um, I had to get transferred to University of Pennsylvania to get the heart transplant. I got it within a few days. Um, I was discharged about nine days after that, and uh, <laughs> and I'm alive now. That's <laughs> my story. Oh. I started work again about five and a half months later. <laughs> I know. I, I'm like, well, that's what happened, and and then you know there was a recovery process, and then I started work again about five and a half months later, doing mostly administrative like education stuff, and then I started seeing patients about a month and month and a half ago. So here I am, like kind of back to normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I take a lot of meds every day, but wow. that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so other than other than your accompanied blister pack that comes with you everywhere, yeah, yeah. And wow, that's uh, that's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's so when I, it's amazing when I, when I hear that, I mean, obviously jaw dropping, I think is the first thing I, that, that I think when I kind of, as you're walking through everything there. Yeah. But um, when, just as a side question, how, how does it feel when you're hearing from your colleagues and like the nurses and, and the other individuals who are involved in your care, kind of talk about what happened in your, your and to you, you know, you don't remember large chunks of it, obviously. How does that, how does that hit you? So I personally like knowing about it and I'm a very like direct, um, I wouldn't say not emotional person, but I, I like, I'm one of those who's like, what happened that day? Let me know. Like, I really want to know. And, um, and I feel like a lot of people, I, I feel like this was a lot harder on, on the people around me. And I feel like anytime I bring it up, nobody else wants to talk about it. And like, they get more emotional than me. So I feel like it becomes harder for like both of us to talk about it then. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, it was one of my, I'm like notoriously like a really hard stick, like even before all this, but now <laughs> I'm like really, really hard stick. Um, and so one of the nurses was like, when she was there, she said, you know, we were just trying to get like extra lines on you. We couldn't get an ABG cause they, they couldn't feel my pulses. And like, so one of them was running through it and then she started tearing up and like, I don't know, you know, so it becomes kind of. I wouldn't say awkward, but it becomes very emotional when we start talking about it usually. But but I'm a, I always want to know more, but not many people want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, no, f- fair enough, fair enough. I can I can appreciate it, but I can also get it from your perspective, right? That you do want to be involved with what happened, right? It's yeah, it's personal. Oh, it's always a little bit personal to you, right? I, I know, and I feel like I should know what happened because it was like me, but but it's also you know. It's interesting what the human mind does. Like you maybe blocked it out for a reason and maybe that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what happens. You perfuse to the main organs and, you know, you become <laughs> altered for a reason and, and, you know, you black out and I don't know. It was just, it was all, it was a blur. And, and, you know, I remember, I remember I woke up when I woke up, I just remember I was intubated still. Um, I was a very, <laughs> very difficult patient cause I kept trying to like self extubate apparently, <laughs> but like, you know, I, I just, I just remember like hearing. So th- the things that I remember specifically is, is hearing like, should we turn this into a code and then waking up trying to self extubate. So like, that's my memory. Like, I don't know anything that happened in between. So I almost feel like like that was taken from me. And I feel like I should know what happened in between, but, but maybe there's a reason why I don't know. So it's weird. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Right. No, I can appreciate that. So when you do look back and you kind of think about um, that, those events, like the parts you do know about or the parts you do remember, were there anything that you found, and I'm specifically going to talk about nurses, Mm -hmm. um, if that's okay, Mm -hmm. is were there things that the nurses, nursing team did um, that you found particularly impactful for you? Oh, definitely. Like throughout my care, 100%. I won't name any specific nurse because there were like a hundred nurses and I loved all of them. And, you know, I was at multiple hospitals. So, so thank you to all of you. But, um, but there were, <laughs> there were a lot of awesome things. So like one of the main things I remember is my room always had a lot of visitors and it was a lot more than like should have probably been there. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I guess, for, so there, there were two things about that. Like I understand, and and I, I was very grateful that I had a lot of like support, and I had people flying in from all over to come visit me, and and it was really nice. But at the same time, you know, it was hard to like have people see me like that, and you know, I have like lines and tubes coming out of me, and like I can't breathe, and like and like people are asking me the same question over and over again. So. A lot of my nurses and I like came up with like a code phrase of like when I didn't want people in there. Um, so, so, you know, we had like little things like that where they would help me out anytime. Um, I felt like I just needed like alone time for like 15 minutes. Um, yeah. Anytime I needed like if I just needed to like venting, I remember I'd be like, can I just talk? Can I just vent to you about like what just happened in the last 15 minutes with my family? Like if my family wasn't there. Um you know, they, they were just there. They would like sit there and just talk to me like my friend, which was awesome. Um, because sometimes, you know, you need that like objective third person to talk to you. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it was always like, and then I remember, (laughs) so the nurses were awesome because there were times, so I, I tried very hard not to be my own doctor and, 
one of the <laughs> one of the, the hardest and and actually they said so the nurses did say I was a great they said I was actually like one of the best doctor patients they had so I took that as a compliment nice. like when well I done. when I was like sick like not not in, not in the ER but um so they said like there were days where I didn't want to know like my specific labs and every day they would come in and they'd be like oh you, do you want to know your labs today do you want to know and like some days you know I just I just didn't want to know because I just didn't like I just wanted to like live that day without knowing what was going on and and they were really good about that um but then there were days where like I really wanted to know everything and they would like print stuff out and come show me um and so they you know that was really nice of them so many many things I, I can I can go on for hours um yeah uh <laughs> this one time um I forget. I remember one time I like asked for Zofran and then I think I said I'd put the order in later. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll sign that later, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> totally forgot I was a patient, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. It, it's hard to get out of that yeah, mindset, I'm sure, right? When you've been just going nuts at that stuff forever. That's really funny, actually. And then, um, yeah, it was fun. It was, I remember one time I went, so I kept going into VTAC, which was one of the scariest parts of like my hospitalization because you never know, like you're going to go into VTAC and, and something's going to happen. Um, and so they were always on like standby. So I was always like being monitored for that. And I, I was always like very, um, nonchalant about it. And, and I think they knew that it had symptoms, but I'd always be like, Oh, I didn't know I had VTAC. It's probably, <laughs> I was like, it's probably artifact. And so one time one of the nurses just like printed the whole strip and brought it in. And she's like, that doesn't look like artifact to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guarantee in the communication between uh, shifts it was like don't trust patient patient is a liar <laughs> i was like no i don't feel no chest pain no palpitations that's nothing it's, it's, Elaine, not it's, it's so cool hearing uh, the, uh hearing your interactions with the nurses because i think i speak for the vast majority of us nurses out there the the things you described are the by far the best parts of our job they're just the best parts, and it's really what fills our bucket. Um, just being able to yeah. be, be objective and just be there with you through the shitty times. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, this was probably the shittiest thing that happened to me in my life so far. I mean, <laughs> the rest of the year wasn't exactly the best either. But, you know, it was nice having having such a supportive, you know, family and friends, but it was also nice having such a great support system in the hospital too. And, and I feel like the nurses did that so, so well. I mean, I can't, I can't even, it, it was, it was like the best care and, you know, and it, it, it was definitely like multidisciplinary. I had great residents and everybody taking care, but the nurses were there the most, you know, so it was, it was just awesome. Um, I can't complain at all. And, and, and they were, they, they were definitely, what I loved about, about everything that they did was they were, they knew when I just wanted to kind of be left alone and they, they kind of, they, they got, to, they, they just got to know me. So it was nice. And so I like that. It is a, it's a special relationship uh, because as nurses, yeah. we are the ones that are there 12 hours a day, sometimes longer. And we develop this intimate relationship that's outside of family, outside of friendship. It's in this own category and it's so sacred. It's, it's, it's such mm -hmm. a cool power. <laughs> There's a lot of funny times too. Like I was NPO many times, but I'm hundred percent sure I ate many of the times that I was NPO. 
<laughs> without my nurse knowing. I'm, I'm sure they knew. I'm sure they knew. Um, but like right after, the, <laughs> right after they extubated me, I know you're supposed to be NPO. Trust me, I know that. But and and like there's an aspiration risk and like all of that. But I was just so thirsty and like I wanted water and and I really wanted ginger ale. And so my mom, like being a mom, went and got me ginger ale. And, and I probably chugged. Like I didn't just use a straw. <laughs> I chugged straight from the can, like four or five like of those little cans of ginger ale, and immediately like threw it all up and then the nurses all came running this is right after probably like two hours after extubation after my heart transplant like, this is a pretty big deal you're not supposed to do that and they all come in and uh, and i was trying to lie i was like oh i probably drank that before the <laughs> transplant <laughs> and, <laughs> i was like i don't know what that and it yeah, smelled totally. like ginger ale like, <laughs> I think the the great part is they were probably like that is so cute that she thinks that we think that that's yeah. accurate. <laughs> the can is rolling away from the bed. But yeah, lots of funny times with them. It's still bubbling from the <laughs> so. That's incredible, and now um, mm-hmm. after, and then you did well after your heart transplant, and now you are back into your the finishing line or the finishing last hundred meters of your residency, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so, so far, like, again, having a heart transplant recovery is kind of weird because everything could change depending on like, you know, I go to weekly checkups and all that still. So I, I stopped doing monthly caths just about two months ago. So it's hard to gauge. And I did have one uh, rejection episode early on. But overall, doing well. Um, I, start, I restarted residency. Um, depending on like how my the rest of my trajectory goes, I should be finishing up definitely before J- June. Um, and my spot is ready for me at, to do critical care medicine at Sinai starting July. Um, so yeah, and yeah, I think that was the most ironic part of my story was that I just matched into critical care like right before I became a critically ill patient. So. <laughs> I'm I'm like really excited to to do all this, but it's just very like ironic and interesting. And I can't wait until an attending says to you, "Are you sure you want to do that? Do you know how that will feel for the patient?" And they'll be like, "Yes, I do." Yeah, actually, like it's very interesting now that I'm seeing patients again. Like, I mean, I don't tell every patient that like I have a heart transplant, but like sometimes there's like this like weird connection where like you know there's a guy in VTAC and and I like kind of looked at him and I was like, you know, sir, like I know you know I know what you're going through and you know, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. I was telling him like what meds we're going to give him. And he had just had like some stuff going on. And, but in like, you, you, I do know what my patients are going through. And like, it's, it's, it's kind of like this weird, you know, relationship, but I don't know. It's very interesting being back. Do you find that that, um, that, type of understanding of the patient's condition, for example, VTAC, and then mm-hmm. you knowing it firsthand, do you find that it also builds a bit of um, resiliency in your own practice? Because now you're connecting with the patient beyond what most providers are capable of. I think so. I think so. And I think, you know what, the way that I see it and the way the thing that's kept me sane through all this is looking at everything that happened to me, kind of like it kind of like a blessing in, in disguise, kind of like, 
I see it as like, you know, no other physician, or at least I'm sure there's other, I don't know if any other physician has gone through exactly what I went through, but I could say most physicians aren't able to exactly feel what their patients are going through. And and I take that as kind of like unique. It's kind of a blessing to know exactly what my patients are going through. So so definitely, and and it makes me it makes me you know become more empathetic and and definitely like changing my practice in different ways. You know, we'll see we'll see what happens, but but overall, definitely, and I and I still love what I do, and even more than I did before. So, wellness in healthcare providers is trending in the social media world as well as in academics nowadays. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, any wellness or, um, I guess with the, any wellness or any resiliency resources that our nurses can, could tap into that you would recommend? Wellness resources specifically. Um, what, what I did a lot of times, so what got me through a lot of this was, you know, the good support that I had, but, um, I started writing a lot. That's why I started my blog. Um, and I took specific time out of my day to start writing, especially my thoughts and my feelings out. And I still try to do that even during residency. And I feel like that's helped me a lot through all of this. Um, that, that's, that's one way I feel like you can channel your emotions into, um, into one specific thing and, and kind of, kind of help you with your strength into doing what you're doing and, and, you know, become more resilient. But that's kind of the way that I did it. Were you a, uh, were you a writer before you uh, started that? I, I wasn't. So if you ask my mom, she always says like, you, you were always a good writer. Don't you remember? Um, and yeah. like, is that the mom view? Yeah. My, <laughs> I, one of my goals in life was always to become like Oliver Sacks or like a Tolga Wande. So I think I always wanted to write and I never thought <laughs> nice. I was good. Um, and I still don't think I'm good. I just like to do it. And I think that anything that you like to do, you're going to be good at. Um, or, you know, if you put the time into it, you're going to eventually be good at. So if you have passion for it, that, that's basically why I think everything turned out the way it did. But yeah, I definitely use writing as a way to overcome everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. So then my takeaway from that is uh, you you might not have the uh, there might not be a recipe out there that works for everyone you got to find what works for you and be willing to try which is i guess sometimes the hardest part exactly yeah wonderful i think that's the that's all the time we have today i really want to thank you for uh coming on our podcast and sharing your story um how can we hear more from you um, you can go to well, my blog has the most updates. So that's um, a change of heart with a period in between the H E A R T, um, and you know I think I can just give you the link to put on your site. But other than that, um, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram. <laughs> I'll give you those links as well. Sweet, those will be in our show notes. Totally. Well, thanks so much, Alin, for taking the time to to talk to us. I mean, we really appreciate it, and I think it's a really important topic that. Um, you know, all of us in healthcare can really get a, a massive piece out of for for our own uh, practice and our own way we look at patients and our own kind of journey in uh, in our healthcare world. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for recess tonight. 